Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. EU Confidential will get underway in just a moment after a message from our partner, Grow with Google. Many mothers find it hard to start working again. We started our online catering business for them. Through Grow with Google, we learn how to make our business stand out for free. Now in France, we've empowered more than 50 women to make a living from their cooking skills. We are Lubna and Donia of Meet My Mama. Two of the 725,000 Europeans so far who found a job or grown their business with Google's help. By 2020, we will support one million more. Grow with Google. To find out more, search new skills, new opportunities. Welcome to Politico's EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, standing in for Ryan Heath, who's on holiday this week. But you'll still hear plenty of Ryan. Later in the show, he talks to Cecile Kayenge, one of the few black members of the European Parliament, about the obstacles and abuse she's faced in her career, and what she wants the EU institutions to do to foster more diversity in their ranks. We also talk to our regular podcast panellists, Lena Abarus and Alba Finn, about Emmanuel Macron's big moment at the European Parliament, the European Commission giving the green light for membership talks to two more countries, and the EU's role, or lack of it, in the Syrian crisis. But we start with an interview Ryan recorded with political reporter Ginger Hervey about her story on sexual harassment at one of the last places you'd expect to find it, the EU's Gender Equality Agency. Joining me now is Ginger Hervey, who's been working for more than six months on reporting harassment issues here at Politico. We've been working together on a number of stories. Welcome to the podcast, Ginger. Sure, thanks for having me. Now, we're going to talk about a fairly horrendous story at the European Institute for Gender Equality that you've just published. Give us a little bit of a summary of how you came upon that story. How did, how did you get the ball rolling in investigating it? So we were approached by one former employee of the Institute, and she said to look into the European Institute for Gender Equality and sexual harassment cases. And so we started digging and I, we, I spoke to her and I spoke to more women who were former employees of the Institute. And then I ended up speaking to more than a dozen people who used to work there or still work there and actually going to Vilnius where it's located in Lithuania and being able to talk to some current employees and interview the director and talk about these cases more in detail. And what, in the course of reporting, what we discovered was that in 2014, there were three formal complaints made to the institution of sexual harassment against three different men who worked there. And the complaints were made, one woman accused one man who was her supervisor of sexual harassment, and then another woman who was a trainee accused two different men of harassment. And 
two of the complaints were upheld. Both of the victims were very, very upset by the process, mm -hmm. and they were not happy with how it was handled. And it really, really illuminated the way that these cases can tear apart a workplace. And what are the sort of allegations that the women made? Um, it ranged from the men making suggestive comments and sexist jokes to one of the allegations was that they had this game in the office where every time they saw a certain colleague who would wear skirts very often, they had a game trying to see what you could spot when she sat in a certain position. No. Things like that. And yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I, they told me they heard rape jokes from men in the office or things like that. And then the more specific allegations were sustained psychological harassment. The women said no. Uh, repeatedly, I, they shared emails and documents where they were saying, please leave me alone. I'm not interested in a relationship with you. You're making me uncomfortable. And the harassment didn't stop. One of the interesting things about this case is the level of documentation you had access to. It's really rare mm -hmm. as a journalist to be able to dive inside an organization and to be shared so much correspondence. It was. And Part of that was, I think, tactical on the part of the institution. When I went to Vilnius, I'd heard a lot from, from former employees and from people who were really unhappy with how it had been handled. And I, to their credit, I sat down with the director, I sat down with other people in the organization, including one of the men who had been accused of harassment, and we talked for a very long time about why they did the things they did. And that was when it really hit me that it's not one manager's problem. It's not one workplace's problem. These are really systemic issues. And the EU institutions supposedly have really good processes for dealing with sexual harassment complaints. And these two women tried to exercise those processes and nobody was happy at the end of it. Yeah, well, some institutions might, but my own experience dealing with the European Parliament is they very much struggle to deal with the complaints that they receive. They know there are problems and they are trying to deal with them but the complaint processes don't work, where almost never is there a finding of sexual harassment, even though we had dozens of allegations come to us via that form. Mm -hmm. And frankly, I, I believe them, even if I can't publish the details of those allegations. It just doesn't add up to processes that, that work very smoothly, does it? Some of the victims told me the same thing, where they were encouraged not to do a formal complaint. They were encouraged not to take legal action. And at first I thought, like I think most people would, wow, they're trying to cover this up. But really, it would be a very, very traumatizing process to bring this forward legally or bring this forward criminally. And so in a lot of cases, women rely on their workplace. They rely on their directors to be able to handle these sort of situations. And what did the men say, those who were accused? It's an interesting dynamic in the workplace there. And a lot of this got dragged out in the reporting is that there's a big divide, a big rift in the staff between the ones who are very feminist and gender equality experts and advocates, and then I guess you could say the lay people who work there. And a lot of those I think were along gender lines. Not all of them, but some of the some of the divide was along gender lines. So I think a lot of the men at this time in the office in twenty fourteen, apparently there was a small group of men who felt attacked by the women who were very feminist and who were very outspoken. Now Clearly, there were some complaints that were upheld, and there were some unresolved complaints or complaints that weren't upheld. And there was a big gap between when some of this happened and when we got access to the information. So what's happened once the formal complaint has ended? Did anyone lose their job? Or indeed, did some of the women quit because of their experience? 
both of the women who filed formal complaints were trainees, so their traineeships ended and they left. And of the three men who were accused, two complaints were upheld. And for both of those men, they did end up leaving the agency before their contract was supposed to end. But still, it was six months and eight months before the end of a five-year contract. And so it wasn't, I think it wasn't the watershed moment that a lot of the women there were hoping for. And at the end of the day, for the victims, I'm not sure what that, they, they weren't actually even informed of the punishment. Now, even. that's fascinating because we've dealt with that in another case that we mm-hmm. weren't able to publish a story on yet inside a private sector organization here in Brussels, where, again, we had some of this miscommunication where uh, women who were victims or witnesses to certain incidents, which were acknowledged to have taken place, because they left the organization before any serious action happened, they then technically lost the right to be informed of what was going on inside the organization because this didn't go down the criminal and and legal route. Mm -hmm. And then you ended up with a lot of unhappy parties in that story because everyone felt that the the thing hadn't been resolved. It sounds very similar to the Institute. I think what I'm gathering from this and from doing research on it, in formal complaint situations, almost nobody ends up happy. It doesn't work out well for a lot of of the parties involved and that's a problem with the system um, because privacy laws of the accused are an issue that you have to think about in this. If you do something wrong in your workplace and you and your boss decide what the punishment is going to be, it's not technically everybody else's right to know what your punishment is. Mm -hmm. But in a situation like this where it deals with personal relationships and it has to do with a colleague and a lot of people knew about it and were upset that this had happened, it really contributed to tension. I mean, even the director said the atmosphere was boiling at the time. And thinking back to that director and their role in in this whole process. Are there any positive steps forward that you were able to identify in your research in how the the institute is tackling this? I think in dealing with sexual harassment cases in the workplace, a lot of the work should be preventative. And so, so trying to change the workplace culture so that this doesn't happen and so that it's very clear that this behavior is not tolerated. And as well, a lot of what people told me was that it's top down. So it really starts at the top. If managers, if directors make clear that this behavior is unacceptable, that trickles down and it's actually a lot more effective than formal processes. So we're four years on from the incidents that occurred uh, in the allegations you investigated. Now that the Institute's had time to to process that, to presumably take some action if they wanted to, uh, based on your reporting, Ginger, have they taken any action? Do staff feel like they have more confidence in the institution? The director pointed to a survey that they did last year saying that confidence has improved in whether reports of inappropriate behavior would be handled appropriately by the agency. So she said that lessons have been learned and they really, they're moving on from these cases. I did hear directly from some women that they're not confident at all that these reports would be taken seriously and they wouldn't report it if something did happen to them. Let's take a step back to give more context to everyone who's listening. Now, we've been doing this for months, and you've looked into hundreds of allegations, you've conducted dozens of interviews. What are some of the things that stand out now that you can look across all of that activity? I think something that stands out is the ubiquity of these cases in the workplace. We specifically put out a call for women who've experienced harassment in the EU institutions and women who are working there. They were able to fill out a Google form and tell us their experiences, tell us what had happened. And what really struck me was 
it's not just one workplace, it's not just one man that's the issue. There's a lot of cultural problems that are happening in workplaces. Even in the European Institute for Gender Equality, which nominally is supposed to be combating gender discrimination, um, they, they have problems with things like this. And so we need to figure out a way to, to deal with them appropriately. That's definitely one of the senses I got from it, where you can't necessarily hold people legally accountable in a lot of these cases because there's not always the right evidence. People aren't always willing to come forward. And also, if they do try and take it forward in a non-legal way, but through some kind of formal process in their workplace, it can get really messy really quickly. And sometimes the people who come forward with what happened to them, they sometimes feel worse off at the end of the process than if they'd kept quiet. And it just gets very messy, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think it's important for victims to think about what they want when they have a situation like this, because it really does drag you through the mud. And so when they make the decision to come forward, it's normally when they've really, really thought through and decided to come forward because it's that severe. And at that point, that's when they're... It's just opened up again. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Ryan. That was Ryan Heath talking to Ginger Hervey about her report on sexual harassment at the EU's Gender Equality Agency. And we'll include a link to that story, if you haven't read it already, on the notes for this edition of the podcast. And it's a welcome back to our Brussels Brains Trust. Hi, Lena Abarus. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Alva Finn. Hello, guys. Thanks very much for coming in on this beautiful Brussels day. I can't quite believe it. We have a few topics to discuss. And the first one, I don't know if it's an EU thumbs up or an EU WTF, but it's Emmanuel Macron's big visit to the European Parliament. Lena, what did you make of this? It was a very powerful speech. I think he got the attention that everyone was waiting for this moment. The content-wise, the the clear messages of uh, united, rejuvenated, uh, more democratic, more progressive Europe was there. It was um, really a hopeful speech. Um, yet it didn't it, it didn't put a roadmap. Still, there are more in-depth, uh, fundamental challenges in front of Europe that the speech didn't tackle. Right, and a lot of these messages, Alva, he's been talking about for a while. They go back to his Sorbonne speech, so now he came to Strasbourg, gave a kind of summary, but there's not much sign of a lot of advance on a lot of these things since he first raised them, right? No, but I think that's what the point of going to Strasbourg was, because, you know, they don't often get people like Macron doing it. Obviously, it was there rather than here, because, again, Strasbourg is the second seat, but it was, it was a very rousing speech. And I think it was basically to remind people in the room, you know, I want change for Europe. I believe in Europe. I'm a young, relatively young uh, European, and I want young Europeans to believe in Europe again. So in general, I don't think you can kind of lay out a roadmap around a speech like that. We already know he has a vision for Europe. I think he was just reminding people this is why I have a vision for Europe and this is why I believe in Europe and this is why I believe in democracy. So yeah, I I quite liked it. What about the possible WTF moment, the wink at Jean-Claude Juncker? I can't imagine Charles de Gaulle doing it. He is the president of the Republic of France. Was it an appropriate statesmanlike gesture? Alva, I believe you have a personal interest in this question. Yeah, I've been known as a provocative winker um, in the past. And I had friends, for example, when I used to, when I used to live in the Middle East, people were like, you can't be winking at people Yeah, like exactly. Because it's it, not appropriate. 
Um, why, like maybe why, that's why my did, why did you me wink too. At people? My me too. It's it's an involuntary thing. I think maybe <laughs> yeah. I just it's you know to reassure people. I kind uh-huh. of do. I'm doing yeah. the wink at you right now. Oh yeah, nice. Are you yep. reassured yeah. by that? Are reassured by that? Slightly freaked out to be okay, honest. Okay, yeah. yeah. Well, you, then this is why I've I've kind of stopped doing it. Right. Uh, and then maybe I can give a bit of advice to my colleague <laughs> that you need to stop doing it too, especially at the president of the European Commission. It was kind of like, did you get that? Like, yeah. are we are we on the same page? Wink. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I thought it was very funny. Lena, what did you make of it? Um, really, luckily, for the first time, we're not uh, all uh, the media and everyone behind the President Juncker. For once, he didn't do anything wrong, and that That's time true. somebody <laughs> over took over. Yeah. So uh, we must uh, we must acknowledge that uh, it made <laughs> gave me the feeling that uh, hey, we're we're all teaming up here. I get your back, you get my back. Right, uh, we're all on like the that, same you know? we're on the same okay. gang here. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. But yeah. It's a pretty very youngster. Um, a gesture, I yeah, think. I mean, it was it's a human gesture, right? Yeah. I mean, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't imagine his spin doctors told him to do that in advance. So it was mm-hmm. some kind of spontaneous <laughs> gesture. Um, let's uh, move on to um, another big story this week, which was the decision of the European Commission to say that it believes Albania and Macedonia are ready to begin membership talks in the European Union. Serbia and Montenegro are already on that track. Is this something that should be welcomed or is the EU kind of getting ahead of itself when it still has these issues to address, these things that Macron is talking about, others are talking about, you know, it's still in the post-Brexit period of trying to figure out what it's all about and what it wants to do next. Alva, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's a good thing because, you know, these processes, there has to be a number of steps and they were already candidates for a long time. I'm more familiar about how they've been aligning themselves with the European Union at an international level, and they really have been doing that. I know a bit more about Albania, and they've made some crucial changes. But the whole thing about this enlargement process is it doesn't work unless you have a kind of carrot stick. And I'm sure they're getting tired of not having opened accession talks. So, yeah, it's how these things evolve. So I think it's a good thing and I hope that it will spur on progress. And also they've said they're going to keep the obviously the chapters that are the most worrying on rule of law, human rights, all of that kind of stuff will be under a lot of scrutiny. Mm -hmm. This one goes to the council now. It's not the commission's uh, decision. So the council has to make a decision, could do so as soon as June. Mm -hmm. Lena, what do you think they will do or should do? We need to remember the Greek Macedonian issue and the naming and... uh It's too early to judge. It's a long process. They need to gather the consensus of all the member states. And uh, there's a new commission by next year, uh, 2019, and then there's a new parliamentary election. So I'm not sure that really they will have any consensus uh, in the coming few months. Uh, And if it's something that they will just give it to the next uh, commission to continue. So I'm not that uh, optimistic that it's going to be a fast process. Or It's a nice press release, nice infographs that today <laughs> they have uh, issued. Nice story, but still it's too early to judge. Yeah, I think it very much is the beginning, really. We we, um, we spent quite a bit of time in, in a lot of uh, countries in the Western Balkans. And I think the case that uh, these countries have been making is this is just the start of the process. We still need to jump through all these hoops. No one needs to get alarmed, but at least let us start. At least let us have a chance to fulfil the conditions. Mm. But as you say, the tough one for Macedonia is they have this, um, I was going to say eternal disputes, not Mm. quite been going on that long, but it feels (laughs) like it, over the name of Macedonia and Greece, you know, effectively wielding a veto over 
Macedonia starting these talks and joining NATO. So I guess the onus once again is on Macedonia and Greece to, to find a way to resolve that. No, the Macedonian government has been, the new government has been making strides to try and do that. It's renamed the airport so that it's not called mm-hmm. Alexander the Great anymore. Yeah. Um, but whether that's going to be enough, I guess we'll see. Um, so moving on to our final topic, um, which of course the, the most serious news of the week was the attacks on Syria in response to the suspected chemical uh, weapons attack there. Um, Europe looking pretty much on the sidelines, of course France and the UK were involved in the strikes along with the US, but the EU as a body um, very much reacting after the fact uh, at the Foreign Affairs Council meeting. Is that something uh, to be concerned about, Lena, do you think? Or is that just the nature of the beast that it's going to be the the big military powers that do the, the heavy lifting in these cases and then Europe reacts afterwards? Once again, Europe is uh, proving to the world that uh, they don't have a united stand with their foreign policy. It is uh, as in back in the 70s when Henry Kissinger said, uh, shall I call, when I want to call Europe, shall I call the UK or shall I call France? Whom do I call? What's changed? And going and, and just uh, doing these strikes, uh, did it work in Libya? Do they really think it's going to work in Syria? Is it really helping? Of course, using uh, chemical weapons is is a horrible thing. Of course, uh, lots of lives have been um, lost, uh, children out, refugees. I mean, the crisis is global now. And uh, since the beginning, because there is no political discussion and no political effort from no one, seriously taken. It, Syria is becoming a battlefield and Europe wants to prove something to the Russians, the Russians want to prove something, and, and who's, who's losing the ground here? It are the Syrians and the children and the women. So it, it, it is really dangerous. There is an upcoming conference next week on Syria and really it makes no sense to make a conference on Syria where they cannot have a unified stand on that. As, as European member states. Right, I mean, I think the foreign ministers did manage to put together a statement pretty much backing the, the action that was taken, but it is one of these questions where, you know, there's meant to be a, a kind of common European foreign policy, but it looks like ultimately these things are decided in, in capitals and, you know, reflecting national interests rather than a kind of common European approach. I, I have to say I haven't seen Federica Mogherini be particularly vocal or feel like she's a point person in this crisis. Alva, what do you think of the EU's role in terms of Syria? Yeah, I think it's difficult for them to do anything major. They can bring people together to chat about it. It's a very hard context, and I think expecting the EU to be able to fix it is a little bit too ambitious for where we are on what you were saying, common European foreign policy. Obviously, they were always going to endorse what happened with the airstrikes, but I, I hope that, some, that even bringing people around the table again next week at the Syria conference will, I don't know, be a, a step towards something. Am I hopeful for that? I don't know. Like I, 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 used, I lived in the Middle East when the Syrian conflict broke out eight years ago, and I am, I'm shocked that it's still going. But I think one of the things that's really kept it going is that it's now, as Lena was saying, a battlefield a kind of return to this, we're going to fight proxy wars again. And that's really sad to see. But is it Europe's role to be able to stop that? I'm not sure. Um, yeah. Alva, the, the conference for next week is a reconstruction of Syria, of something is, is being now is still under destruction and being, uh, uh, it is in war. So the thing is bringing people on the table without bringing 
the representatives there on the ground and talking to whether it is the current regime or the opposition and uh, lots of opposition meetings has taken place in Brussels and in Geneva and another conference and another conference and nothing is changing so maybe you can't get some another result if you keep doing the same thing so Europe really has to stop doing the same thing I mean I come from the Middle East we don't see any light uh, at the end of this tunnel the theme of next week's Syria conference was decided before we found out, obviously, for a long time, before we found out about the chemical attacks. Um, before that, it was believed that they had basically been getting rid of their, their chemical weapons. So in some ways, it's just really, the timing isn't great. How do you focus on reconstruction when something like that has just happened? But I think probably the idea behind it was to be forward-looking. Because if you can't imagine a future where you're not at war, then how will you ever get to that point? Because everybody is still in the conflict. Maybe I mean, I guess it comes back maybe to that carrot and stick that you're talking about, right? You want to say to people, listen, if you can find a way to end this conflict, there are rewards there but whether that's a sufficient incentive Lena at this stage this is the second time this conference last year it was initiated and launched by the government of Kuwait together with the European Union and this year the European Union decided to go ahead with the United Nations so from last year to this year what did we change it's getting worse so okay well um, sorry to end it on such a somber note but Lena Alva thanks again see you next week And now it's time for Ryan's interview with Cecile Kayenge, former Italian government minister, now a member of the European Parliament. And as you'll hear, the interview took place in a slightly unusual location. Joining me now on the podcast is Cecile Kienge, who is a member of the European Parliament from Italy. Welcome, Cecile. Thank you. Now, we have a very interesting situation. Uh, We have been locked out of the radio studio down at the Parliament. So we are sitting here in a little alcove, hoping no one interrupts us. And that's important because we've got a lot of interesting things to talk about. I'm not even sure almost where to begin. Maybe let's start with a general question to set the scene. You're literally one of the few MEPs of colour. And there's just a handful, literally, who are of African descent. How does that impact on your daily work here in Brussels and in Strasbourg? And is it different from your experiences back in Italy and other politics you've practiced? So before we begin, I want to thank you for this opportunity. I think that it's important to give a voice for minority here in the parliament. I feel honoured to be here and uh, to work in the European Parliament as a, a member of European Parliament representing the hidden face of Europe. It's important to have figures that represent uh, diversity. And uh, you know that uh, I'm uh, co-president of ARDI, Anti-Racism uh, Diversity uh, intergroup here in the parliament because we want to put a focus fighting against uh, racism and diversity. Uh, I was uh, first, I, I know that you know that I was first uh, in, uh, in Italy, the first black minister in Italy and you know that I had to cope uh, with uh, racist uh, statements uh, and uh, not only by some people but uh, also by some politicians and the important case is about uh, the vice president of the Senate uh, mm-hmm. 
Roberto Calderoli. He's uh, for me, it's uh, a very important case because uh, the uh, case of Roberto Calderoli uh, go to the Senate and the Senate say that uh, it's not a problem, it's only an opinion, political opinion. And so after this uh, de- decision, I went to the court to say that uh, for me it's not uh, sufficient, but we must go on, we must uh, proceed because Roberto Calderoli must uh, come to the court and uh, he must uh, answer their proposal, their racist proposal. This, this decision say to the people that today it's important for everybody to uh, uh, be responsible and for me it's very important to say this today. Thank you. Comparing that to your experience here in the European Parliament, do you think people treat you better in a more welcoming way, a non-racist way? Or do you find that there are attitudes like that also here in the Parliament? Yes, here in the Parliament, it's uh, not the same in uh, Italy, because in Italy, I have many, many attacks. But here in the Parliament, it's not the same, because here, I can have some uh, episodes, but uh, it's not very manifest that uh, in uh, Italy. It's kind but, of uh, a, not invisible, but it's a very yes, discreet form of exactly. discrimination. Uh, I want to see many African people uh, for African descent here in the parliament. And I find it strange. I mean, I'm a Caucasian Australian who moved to Europe, so I don't feel that I've experienced a, a, a direct racism, but it's very obvious. You look at the faces inside this parliament versus the faces that walk on the street of Brussels or the faces that I knew when I lived in London or in Australia. It's a very white institution and I don't think anyone is suggesting that you can tell people who to vote for, but I also notice a real lack of uh, structural response. There's not really a system that is recognizing that these are very white institutions. Do you think there are more systemic responses that the Parliament, the European Commission and others could come up with to change the diversity here? Yes, uh, in uh, some way Europe is still uh, uh, struggling on responding. I'm co-president of ARDI, a uh, anti-racism diversity intergroup. And uh, with my colleague, we are promoting integration and we are uh, preparing a resolution about uh, Afrophobia. And we organize uh, a week showing that Europe needs to focus on diversity. And I think that uh, racism in Europe is still not being seen as a real problem. It should not give a definition and you don't recognize it's difficult to have a global strategy against racism and against Afrophobia and uh, it's the first step for uh, uh, changing the institution. The European Union is a member state has uh, to face uh, the fact that the generation of people born from immigrant parents are reclaiming their rights to be considered as European and want to be not only considered but also represented in institution. It's difficult for other people to understand this, but I think that we must change our mentality. Today we must use uh, use solely and Mm. not use sanguinis, because it's very important. I find that those two concepts amazing. So for anyone listening who doesn't know, Jules Soli is the idea that you can become the nation that you uh, live in or were born in. It's not about uh, your bloodlines. And As an Australian, that was something that I took for granted. I didn't realize there was even a system where people define their nationality based on purely on the blood. 
And I find it amazing that if we have policies of integration, but we wouldn't allow people to fully integrate by becoming citizens, even if they've lived in the country their whole life. To me, it seems that the integration policy would be doomed to fail. So um, I guess you're saying that's two sides of the same coin, that for integration to work, you have to let people take on the citizenship of the country they live in. Yes, it's, it's very important because integration is the big issue here in Europe. And I think that every member state must uh, reform their uh, uh, law about citizenship, about uh, migration, to say that uh, the big issue today is uh, integration and uh, in every, every field. One last quick question. If you had to give any advice to a person of color who is listening to the podcast, who's thinking, maybe I want to be an MEP one day, or I want to come and work for the EU here in Brussels or Luxembourg or wherever it might be, what's your advice to them about how they can succeed and be part of this system? So I'm, I think that it's, it's very important to put in uh, directive policies to say that uh, we can do affirmative action. You know that we have uh, here in the European Parliament, we have um, 63% of men. We have uh, 37 of uh, women. We must look of all uh, the criteria and the affirmative action can give a person like me, I'm a black woman, can give me an opportunity, but it's important for all the member states, it's important into the EU, and uh, I think that it's important to put in uh, the um, European institution affirmative action. Cecile Kienge, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That was Cecile Kienge talking to Ryan Heath at the European Parliament. That's all we have time for on this episode of EU Confidential. We'd love it if you would officially become part of the EU Confidential community by signing up at politico.eu slash registration. You'll get a weekly newsletter that includes the podcast and invitations to any podcast-related events. We'd also be very grateful if you could like, rate or review the podcast on whatever platform you use and spread the word about the show on social media. And we're always keen to hear from you. You can reach us on email at podcast at politico.eu. EU Confidential is a team effort and it couldn't happen without Ryan Heath, Michelle Stoddart, Weidong Lin and Antonio Fernandez. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.